We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Hi, thanks for tuning in for our latest episode of This Does Not Compute. I'm your CSIS guest host, Caitlin Chin, taking over today for Jim Lewis. I'm here with Lisa MacPherson, who is a senior policy analyst at Public Knowledge and an expert on policy issues affecting digital platforms and local journalism. To kick us off, Lisa, could you tell us about you and your work? What brought you to public knowledge and how did you become interested in platform accountability? Sure, I had a somewhat unusual path to the public policy world. I've spent most of my career in consumer marketing at brands you know, like Fisher Price and Timberland Boots and Hallmark Cards. And my specialty was in digital marketing transformation, helping companies use data and digital technology to reach and influence their customers. But I came to realize over time that the same capabilities that we marketers were helping perfect were also being used to spread hate speech, violate privacy, um, and potentially destroy democracy. So I left my career and attended a fellowship at Harvard, and that ultimately led to a fellowship at Public Knowledge, which turns into a permanent position. I specialize in democratic information systems. That's the quality of information available to citizens on the internet, as well as fostering policy solutions for local news. Thanks, Lisa. We're lucky to have you here. Big tech and democracy certainly has been a hot topic, not only on Capitol Hill, but all around the world. In particular, the relationship between democracy, news, and technology. We know that the digital age has been disruptive for traditional news outlets, and especially for local or smaller publishers. And the vulnerability of this industry was demonstrated by the initial outbreak of COVID-19 in 2020, which triggered waves of layoffs and downsizing among even some national or digital first outlets. But this is a trend that has been happening even before COVID-19. So Lisa, could you paint a picture for us? What trends are you seeing in the way that people access news? And why are so many policymakers paying attention to the relationship between news publishers and technology platforms? Sure. Well, the primary trend by far in how people access information is the inexorable move to the internet. Since it went mainstream in the late 1990s, people's time and attention has moved from TV and print and radio to the internet. And so today, more than eight in 10 adult, adults, at least in the United States, say they get their news, at least sometimes, from their digital devices. None of that news, as you know, being created by Google or Facebook. But the real disruption in the relationship between news publishers and technology platforms is the related trend in how advertisers promote their products. They follow their consumers onto the internet as we went there, not just for news, but for everything in our daily lives. Since for most of their history, newspapers had gotten their revenue from paid circulation, but also display ads and classified ads, the movement of that advertising to the internet had a devastating impact on their business model. Today, it's estimated that about 80% 
of online advertising is Facebook and Google. Um, and that coincides with decline in advertising in traditional news channels. But importantly, that wasn't all causation. Platforms were offering advertisers cheaper, more efficient, more targeted ways to attract their customers. Newspapers in many cases were slow to realize the need for innovation and they were slow to innovate their business model. Uh, notably, Craigslist back in 1995, before Google and Facebook even got their start, was one of the first and most prominent innovators in the space and they captured a huge proportion of classified advertising. Other factors that publishers are now facing are things like consolidation in the news industry and the growth and influence of financially motivated owners like venture capitalists and hedge funds. I want to clarify something you mentioned about the trends in advertising. Some news outlets and policymakers might argue that large digital platforms are to blame for the decline in advertising revenues in the news industry. I've heard people say that companies like Facebook or Google directly benefit from news publishers by posting summaries and quotes from news articles and driving user conversation on their platforms without compensating publishers for this content. However, there is another argument. Google and Meta may argue that Publishers also benefit from having people share their content on platforms like Facebook or Google and Instagram. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how platforms like Google and Meta directly either benefit or benefit from newspapers. I think both of those arguments are true. That is, Google and Facebook absolutely benefit from their users um, reaching for or accessing or searching for news on their platforms and the ability to place advertising in conjunction with that content, that is true. And the news outlets get benefit from the traffic that's created and the links that are created from those platforms and that traffic is available to them for commercialization. And so there's definitely a value exchange. The magnitude of that exchange is hotly debated. For every report that comes out showing the billions of dollars that platforms gain from advertising on news, there's another statement from the platforms saying that news specifically does not account for a lot of their advertising revenue and that it's not as dominant a portion of their content as some claim. The inability to understand what that true value exchange is, is one of the reasons why we don't favor bills that try to create a forced negotiation of value between platforms and publishers. It runs both ways and attempts to try to quantify that, I think are not the best mechanism to try to address the impact that technology has had on news publishers. On a related note, earlier this summer, Meta announced that it would end its paid partnerships with U.S. news outlets like the Washington Post and BuzzFeed, um, which would feature their content in the Facebook News tab. And what's interesting to me, though, is their publicly stated reasons behind the shift. Meta said that people don't use Facebook anymore for news and that a lot has changed for the company in the past few years. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, there's no question that Facebook is in the midst of at least one, maybe two strategic pivots, trying to build the metaverse rather than being so dominant from revenue on their traditional social media channels and trying to compete with the likes of TikTok, that type of thing. But to me, the large publicity that their announcement got about diminishing the importance of news really shows how dominant their influence is on news today. And I think we should resist any policy solutions that deepen the news industry's reliance on the major platforms and that deepen Google and Facebook's influence over the future of the news business. So speaking of the dominance of large technology platforms in the news business, there has been a lot of talk about how publishers have unequal bargaining power when it comes to negotiating revenue sharing agreements with large technology companies. And there's been a lot of buzz on Capitol Hill about a bill called the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. Can you give our audience a high level rundown of what was proposed in this legislation and why was it controversial? The current focus on the JCPA actually originates with a proposal to try to address the so-called market imbalance between publishers and platforms in Australia in the form of the Australian Bargaining Code. It was an attempt by the Australian government to force platforms to pay for content from publishers. And if the platforms and publishers can't come to agreement on the value or terms, the government steps in with a forced arbitration process. And that was kind of in latest 2019, earliest 2020. In April of 2022, Canada introduced a similar model and that brings us to the United States and the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. The act proposes creating a safe harbor from antitrust law that would allow news companies to band together to negotiate compensation for their content with the largest digital platforms, something that they are normally disallowed from doing under antitrust law. And the bill also allows publishers to restrict Google and Facebook from accessing their content, which frankly, we think risks the public losing access to credible information online. And as passionate as we at Public Knowledge are about finding policy solutions to the crisis in local news, we do not advocate for, in fact, we advocate strongly against the JCPA. Antitrust exemptions in general have rarely achieved the beneficial goals that they set out to create. The introduction of payment for simply linking to content on the internet to us threatens the value and, and the capability for open access to information online. We believe that the largest news organizations will inevitably get a disproportionate share of the money. That's certainly been the case in Australia. And there are absolutely no provisions requiring that they spend it on journalism. And so there's really no reason to believe that the funds will pass through these large conglomerates and wind up with hiring and retaining um, journalists and the production of journalism. There's also some provisions in the bill that we believe actually discourage platforms from moderating content in accordance with their community standards um, or their terms of service. 
which will do nothing to increase the quality of information available to citizens online. So that's a lot, but in simplest terms, we think this bill will actually compound some of the biggest problems in our information landscape, like consolidation and like declining quality of information available to citizens. I'd like to address some of the core criticisms of this bill. You talked about the Australia's news media bargaining code, and some of the concerns were that Australia's code would primarily help larger news companies, and it also relies on companies like Google and Meta not threatening to pull out of the country altogether. Does the JCPA address some of the challenges that we've seen in Australia? Well, first, you're absolutely right about some of the outcomes of the Australian bill, but it's important to note first that neither Facebook nor Google are actually subject to the Australian news media bargaining code. In a last minute revision to the bill that was brought about because yes, they did either threaten to or actually withdraw their products from the Australian market, both platforms avoided being designated under the code. Instead, they cut private commercial deals with major news publishers. And those agreements that they forged don't pertain to their core products. In the case of Google, the agreements are for their news showcase, which is sort of a non-commercial sidebar of Google. And in the case of Facebook, they pertain to their Facebook news product, not the main feed that we're all so familiar with. And as a result of that, that yes, some publishers got some revenue, but the construction of it means that little was done to change the fundamental power dynamics that's brought about by the monopolistic nature of their core products. To us, that's problematic. Its supporters point to the idea that the code brought about an estimated 150 million US dollars to publishers but even those that advocated most strongly for the code acknowledge that it's kind of unfinished business. For example, one investigation showed that two media corporations that dominate the Australian market got much of the benefit from the negotiation. Small publishers have complained they've been left out of negotiations, particularly in the case of Facebook. The bill was purposefully designed without transparency requirements, which I think is now acknowledged as a mistake. So again, some revenue was created for some publishers some of the time, but there were still a lot of issues with the bill. A more comprehensive review of the bill is due from their regulators in September. And to answer your question directly, we think the JCPA will have some, if not all of these concerns, as well as some others, such as the ones that I've described for content moderation. Is this why some some news outlets, especially smaller ones, are arguing that the JCPA is not effective because companies like Facebook and Google haven't been designated for mandatory arbitration? In Australia, yes, there even those that have been designated as qualifying news organizations, some of them have not gotten a seat at the table in Australia. So absolutely. In the United States, though, some small media outlets are also advocating against the bill because they believe that the disproportionate share of benefits will go to the large conglomerates and that things like consolidation will actually be furthered by the bill. 
Similarly, five of the industry's largest labor unions have also demanded changes in the bill because they don't believe that the funds will be used to fund journalism and journalists. So the bill's really brought together some unexpected <laughs> bedfellows in terms of advocating against it because of some of the concerns that I've described. Is there anybody who's in support of the Australia's news media bargaining code? Who has it primarily helped since it's been enacted? It has primarily helped the dominant news organizations in Australia, News Corp and Nine most notably. In the United States, the biggest advocates for the JCPA are the largest legacy news organizations, most notably the News Media Alliance in the case of large newspaper organizations and the National Association of Broadcasters, which represents large broadcasters. Going back to the United States, you mentioned content moderation in the context of the JCPA. Could you talk about that a little bit more, especially since given the recent developments of an a certain amendment that Ted Cruz um, was in favor of? Could you tell us about this? <laughs> well, sure. Um, that, that was quite a kerfuffle um, when Senator Cruz introduced his amendment. But the bill had a lot to do with content moderation even before Senator Cruz's amendment. There is a provision in the bill that requires that platforms negotiate with any news organization that qualifies to be a member of a joint negotiating entity. And the joint negotiating entities set the standards for who will be admitted. That means that platforms may be forced to negotiate with and carry and even compensate news publishers who consistently violate the platform's community standards in terms of service through their content. So it introduces a requirement that platforms have to carry content that they might otherwise find objectionable because it violates their standards of terms of service. And we think in an environment where we're trying to improve the quality of information available, that's not working uh, in the right direction. There are also requirements in the JCPA, the so-called retaliation provision, which means that news publishers have the right to go to court if they think that platforms have done content moderation in a way that retaliates against the news outlet for being part of a joint negotiating entity, and that we believe will really chill platforms content moderation to avoid the risk of, you know, of legal action. And so there's several provisions already in the bill that we think have a negative impact on the ability of platforms to exercise their rights not to have compelled speech and to moderate their platforms in accordance with their community standards. Many of our listeners who follow antitrust may be surprised about the support for newspapers to collectively negotiate terms despite antitrust laws. Is this something that's been done before, either within the news industry or for other sectors? There actually is one example where there's been legislation that brought about an antitrust exemption for exactly the same reasons. It was called the Newspaper Preservation Act of 1970, which alone should give you a sense of how far back the challenges <laughs> for traditional news outlets have gone. At that time, the existential threat was radio and TV. And so this Newspaper Preservation Act created an antitrust exemption that let newspapers in the same geography 
create joint operating agreements so they could negotiate advertising rates and subscription rates in a way that they normally wouldn't be allowed to do. It did little to solve the underlying trends, like it didn't really solve the problem. Trends that were already reducing the number of newsrooms and it really had the effect of kind of insulating some of these large legacy organizations from competing more effectively. And the weaker player, even within these agreements among newspapers, <laughs> uh, were generally the first to die. So uh, there's been other antitrust exemptions in other industries, but the one that is, was in this industry for similar reasons just didn't have the intended effect and had some negative unintended effects. Right. And 50 years later, we're having a similar- Here we are again, yes. (laughs) So we've covered the challenges of antitrust exemptions for newspapers to jointly negotiate um, revenue sharing agreements, but what are some other proposed frameworks or mechanisms to support journalism that could potentially be more effective? Absolutely. Well, first, it might be helpful to know that in general, the United States underfunds its free press relative to other democracies. One thing that they have in common, these democracies, is the understanding how essential a free and independent press is as an institution to support democracy. Um, It started with sort of the Federalist Papers enshrined in the First Amendment. And over time, um, although I know there are concerns about how the government intervenes in media, there have always been government solutions, such as postal subsidies in the early days, the provision of public broadcasting. So this is not a completely new idea. Illustratively, other governments, again, fund more. So there's subsidies based on the number of journalists employed in both Canada and Denmark. There are delivery and distribution subsidies in Norway and Sweden and France. There's a reduced value added tax for publishers in the United Kingdom. But there are also some other really promising models here in the United States, for example. We advocate very strongly for a different piece of legislation called the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. It has similar goals to the JCPA, but it's structured in a very different way. It empowers citizens and small businesses and news organizations themselves through a system of tax credits. So a tax credit to citizens to encourage them to subscribe, a tax credit for small businesses to encourage them to advertise in local media, and then a tax credit, a payroll tax credit that directly encourages news organizations to hire and retain journalists. And we think that's a better construction and a more direct path uh, to helping uh, those news organizations. There's also one called the Saving Local News Act of 2019. This is a piece of legislation that would make it easier for news organizations to qualify as nonprofit organizations so they can benefit from a different kind of revenue stream that allows for the creation of more non-commercial news, kind of gets at the sometimes negative effects of an advertising-driven business model. And then if there simply isn't yet agreement on how to structure plans to save local news, there's another bill called the Future of Local News Act which is a bipartisan bill in the House that would simply create a commission to study 
and examine and affirm the role of local media and look at policy solutions to try to bring about ways to make sure citizens have the information they need. So different ways to do it. There's also been various proposals for taxing the platforms. That is a different way of getting revenue from digital platforms for news organizations. In fact, public knowledge, the organization <laughs> I work for has put forward one of our own. We have a proposal for what we call the Superfund for the Internet, and it would impose a federal user fee on the dominant platforms based on how many monthly active users that they have, on the theory that the greater the user base, the greater potential for harm, and it would require that they use fact-checking as part of their content moderation approach. And then the funds would be directed to news organizations who start or scale up fact-checking with the platforms as a brand new revenue stream. So we see this as a way to accomplish two goals, help improve the quality of our information environment through fact-checking and helping address networked disinformation, and then create revenue for news organizations in a way that's really well suited to their current capabilities. So those are just some of the other kind of proposals out there for different ways to solve the underlying problem. Those are both worthy goals. What type of reception has public knowledge gotten for the Superfund for the internet proposal? A lot of intrigue. The idea that it's a different way to move wealth from platforms to publishers. It's passed several hard sets of questioning about its fit with constitutional protections and kind of serves the purpose of, again, kind of this dual set of objectives. We haven't gotten it adopted by any single office yet, but we continue to get questions on it and we're hopeful we can kind of keep it in the array for consideration of other solutions for local news. What about some of the other measures that you mentioned, like the Local Journalism Sustainability Act and the Future of Local News Act? What are the statuses of those? Yeah, the Local Journalism Sustainability Act is the one that so far has gotten the most and pretty significant momentum. It has been offered in both houses. It enjoys bipartisan support in the House. And one of its provisions, the payroll tax credit for news organizations to hire or retain journalists, has been kind of pulled out of the act and has been proposed for inclusion in several different pieces of legislation, including the Build Back uh, Better Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and so on. It hasn't made it in across the finish line, but it is still being looked at and we are still very hopeful and advocating very strongly that it make its way into a piece of legislation. I definitely think that tax credits is a really interesting model to explore. I was also curious, you mentioned public media and why, why in your view is the United States so reluctant to fund public broadcasting? I was really surprised the other day when I found out that according to the Neiman Lab, the United States government spends about $3 per person on public broadcasting as of 2019. And in comparison, in 2019, France spent about $76, Australia spent about $36, and Canada spent $26 per person. So why is there this gap? Yeah, Caitlin, that is such a great example of the comment we talked about earlier that the United States underfunds news compared to other democracies. And it's particularly ironic because in the United States, in Britain, in France, public media 
remains among the most trusted news vehicles available. So in a time when we're all struggling to retain and protect the trust that we place on our institutions, including our, our news media, um, it's, it's remarkable that those have kind of held on to that trust. Some of the reasons that we, we may do that, one is that not everyone believes that the government should be playing such an active role in the, the a free and independent press. Uh, some concern that those don't have the same sort of commercial value as other sources of news and so on. So there's a variety of objections on both sides of the aisle, but there's no question that other democracies have done this well and consumers have responded to it positively in terms of placing their trust in those channels. Absolutely. I think it goes back to maybe the even the fundamental question of what are our goals in these policies. I do think that supporting the news industry is one of them, but another really important goal as well is promoting access to information, trust in institutions, and of course, public broadcasting as a part of that. But like you mentioned, there are some competing views about the role of government. And as we know, politicians do have a very unique relationship with both the media and tech companies. Um, let us not forget back in 2018 when the CEO of Google testified before Congress and was asked why Google searches were so, showing so many negative news articles about a Republican sponsored bill. And so just given this level of partisanship and the differences between Democrats and Republicans on their outlook toward journalism and tech companies, do you think it's possible for any legislation related to the media industry to find bipartisan consensus? Yeah. Well, first, Caitlin, I, I really want to lead into your comment about the importance of news in a democracy. That is not theoretical. Studies show that citizens without access to local news feel less of a sense of cohesion and community. They vote less. They're less informed about issues impacting their community. They're less likely to run for office. And it's been shown that they experience higher corruption and costs and corporate malfeasance. So this is not some sort of theoretical or historical belief. This is really well grounded in research. And it's part of the reason that so many democratic governments provide support to local journalism. The good news is that at a time when there are threats to our democracy, there are declines in trust in democratic institutions, there is bipartisan support for finding some roots of support to local news in America. As I said, the Local Journalism Sustainability Act has bicameral support and bipartisan support in the House. The JCPA, even though we don't like all of its mechanisms, has bipartisan support um, and so on. So there have been efforts to find common ground that leverage the idea that an open and free and independent press is an essential pillar of democracy. We're facing some very significant threats to democracy and trust in the United States. And, and we're confident that you know, over time, we're, we're gonna find a path that all sides can agree to, to make sure that it, that it thrives and that, uh, that we have the information we need. Right, first of all, I cannot agree more that journalism, especially local journalism is really important to promote civic engagement in the United States and around the world. I do wonder though, because not only is our government divided at the moment, but also our country and even the news landscape itself. We do see 
the rise of partisan news outlets, like I'm thinking maybe Fox News or the Daily Caller or Sky News. Do policies to support the news industry also spark debate on who is getting the funds? For example, which organizations qualify as a news outlet? Would right-wing outlets be included? Or what about freelance journalists or even online bloggers? The short answer is yes. On every one of these pieces of legislation, there is lengthy and detailed debate about who should qualify. Um, And it's kind of tricky because you don't necessarily want your government declaring what is real news and what is independent news. And so it's a tricky balance to strike. The uh, JCPA, the Local Journalism Sustainability Act, all of them have pages long descriptions and provisions of what should qualify. Most of it having to do with having uh, good journalistic practices, things like a fact-checking process, uh, having a corrections process in place, uh, the frequency with which they create new and unique content, um, and whether they put a focus on uh, sort of areas of interest to their local community. So each one of these has some discussion and, and lengthy descriptions, knowing that there's also, you know, pitfalls to having the government too involved in this. One of the things, though, is that some of these bills, most notably in our mind, the JCPA, despite all that discussion, still tend to favor large legacy news organizations, where many feel that some of the most promising models for news in the United States are not that. They are nonprofit, where you have community investment and philanthropic investment and kind of work against some of the disincentives associated with a commercial business model, community-owned business model. There's discussion about plans to, you know, or, or should there be plans to, or, or policies that favor replanting news organizations that are now in the hands of financial organizations back into the hands of communities, policies that focus local ownership, that, that serve marginalized communities, some of the most promising models for journalism are not those traditional legacy uh, organizations. And we favor policies that help spark innovation in some of these new models that really are more rooted in the community, particularly communities that have traditionally been underserved. So some of these bills like the JCPA have been framed not only in a competition lens, but in terms of like we mentioned, promoting civic engagement, disinformation. And I was wondering, alongside bills that more narrowly focus on the news industry, like the Local Journalism Sustainability Act or the JCPA that we mentioned, many governments, including the United States, are also currently engaged in these broader conversations surrounding commercial privacy, antitrust, and digital advertising. So I was wondering, in your view, could these broader measures affect the dynamic, especially related to digital advertising between newsrooms and large digital platforms? Or do you think that there are perhaps more structural challenges in the current business models of newspapers beyond digital advertising? Uh, To answer your question about whether some of these other approaches can help, absolutely yes. I could could not agree more. In fact, we think some of those approaches actually hold far more promise 
for reducing the dominant power of the technology platforms in our news environment and opening up healthier innovation and competition in the news business. So for example, more enforcement of our existing antitrust laws is a more effective path to mitigating the dominance of the existing platforms than an antitrust exemption in our view. More competition policy and new laws that prohibit some of the practices that are unique to the technology center sector, excuse me, and have made them so dominant. To your point, data privacy protections that can undercut the surveillance business model of the dominant platforms, that data that is their not so secret weapon in targeting and co content customization for customers. We also have advocated for a proposal for a dedicated digital regulator that has the expertise and the agility to keep up with innovation in the technology sector while reining in some of its excesses. And we also believe there are continued opportunities to advocate for better content moderation on the part of the platforms themselves more consultant with stakeholders on how they set their content moderation policies, more consistency in how they enforce their policies, more transparency in the results they get from their different approaches of you know, doing content moderation to try to mitigate the harms of disinformation. We think all of these can have a real impact on the quality of information available to citizens, on the ability of news organizations to compete more effectively, and on undermining the power of these huge and dominant technology platforms. Um, Lisa, thank you so much again for joining us and taking through all of these recent developments and issues. This has been a really informative conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to share, any other current or upcoming developments that our audience should pay attention to? Sure. Well, first, I want to address one of your questions that you asked that I'm not sure we got to, and that is that there are some potential pitfalls for having government intervention yeah. in press independence and freedom. And from our perspective, Yes, those pitfalls exist, but they can be avoided based on the nature of government intervention. So poorly designed policies can undermine editorial independence, but given the scale of the crisis, the history of government support and some of those threats to democracy that we talked about, we think it is possible for there to be government policy that fosters an independent and free press. But it needs to follow some principles. It needs to be content neutral. It needs to be nonpartisan. It needs to be structured in a way that ensures editorial independence, such as through the use of independent boards mm -hmm. um, that administer the funds. It needs to be future friendly. How do we spark these new and promising business models for the future of journalism and make sure that supports both current and future players? How do we make sure that it helps local communities develop sustainable models and really develop locally grounded and diverse media for communities, again, with a particular emphasis on underserved communities. And how does it actually result in communities having more reporters? That should be kind of our guiding principle. So these principles you know, may vary by country, you know, different cultural and, and, and legal frameworks, but we do think there is a way to do this in a way that gives citizens what they need and make sure that the press remains free and independent. 
Absolutely. Everything that you just mentioned, those need to be our guiding principles. Lisa, thank you so much again for joining us on the podcast. And I look forward to continuing this conversation another time. Thank you so much for having me, Caitlin. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.